This episode is sponsored by Project Heal. Project Heal is the only nonprofit in the U.S. focused on equitable treatment access for people struggling with eating disorders. Founded in 2008, Project Heal has given around 200 life-saving grants to people who could not afford treatment. Now, 12 years later, Project Heal has scaled their model to reach more people than ever, and they're on track to provide access to recovery to 100 people this year alone. Given that 30 million Americans have eating disorders and only 20% of those people receive care, Project Heal is especially focused on helping those most significantly affected by systemic oppression, financial strain, and unfair insurance denials. On this episode, we have Craig Kramer. Craig began his career with the International Human Rights Law Group and monitored the 1987 election in South Korea that ended the country's 26-year military rule. He then practiced corporate law for five years before joining the staff of Michigan Congressman Sander Levin. From there, he moved to Johnson & Johnson in a governmental affairs capacity, building the company's business globally throughout Asia and South America. After a family mental health issue came to light, Craig has devoted his career to transforming mental health care worldwide as the mental health ambassador and chair of Johnson & Johnson's global campaign on mental health. Craig, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Osi, for inviting me. That's really great to have you here. I was uh, uh, very moved by a share you did on the platform Never Alone, and I was uh, excited that you accepted my my invitation to to chat with us. Um, love to go back to the beginning of um, your career. Um, are you from Michigan originally, or? Yeah, born and raised. Uh, my father was from Ypsilanti, which is a Town sure. in Ann Arbor, in the in the southern uh, lower peninsula part of the state. My mother was from the upper peninsula of the upper peninsula, up in the Keweenaw Peninsula, a place called Borium, former copper mining. Uh, oh yeah, center of the country. Yeah, it's the upper peninsula, Uper, we call them. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, Ypsilanti spelled with a Y. Uh, yeah, up today. That's right. It's named <laughs> after an Indian chief. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, that's where I was born in East Lansing, which is where Michigan State University. Exactly, is. MSU. Wow. Okay. And then you, but you ended up at uh, Michigan for law school. <laughs> well, the family does both Spartans and Wolverines. You know? Nice. So. Okay. Great. Well, and then a few steps prior to that, you were at Choate and then Princeton undergrad. Yeah. yeah. Did you always sense you would study law? No, I mean I, I'm the first lawyer in the family. I'm Probably the last, it seems. Um, but I, you know, my, my parents were the first ones to go to college in their families. Um, and um, I just had this wonderful opportunity to go to, uh, you know, my, my, my dad was raised Catholic. My mother was raised Lutheran, and she converted to Catholicism, which I didn't appreciate until years late, later. It was, a, it was a reversal of 500 years of, you know, <laughs> religious schism. And... Uh, and it still reverberates, you know, within our families as something that was unique and, and uh, painful in some ways. Wow. Uh, but uh, it's relevant because when I had an opportunity uh, academically to go somewhere, uh, my parents, especially my mother, was really keen on, on going to Cho, which is where John F. Kennedy went, the first right. Catholic president of the United States. And uh, I still remember the day the letter came in the mail. My mother cried that uh, <laughs> I was going to go to the same school as John F. Kennedy, who was, you know, was Camelot. It was this other, yeah, the the you know, the upper echelon of society. We were, you know, we were 
uh, Midwestern, uh, you know, middle-class uh, families who, who, you know, were not familiar with that whole world. And uh, so sure, sure. going to show was more than, you know, the norm for my family. It was really, a, uh, you know, going through the looking glass into a completely different universe. And um, it's been a wonderful opportunity yeah, to change my life. At Choate, um, I was I was a hockey ice hockey player. Comes from Michigan. That was sure. my thing. Um, we we actually had uh, it's the only ice hockey team in Choate's hundred plus year history to have a perfect record. Oh, congratulations on we, that! We ended up getting inducted into the, the Hall of Fame of the of the of Choate. I was the goaltender. Wow, that's a tough position. It was a psychologically interesting position on the team because you're always being fired at, you know, you're largely reactive, but uh, it's kind of a Zen sort of mm. you know, thing where you try to just give yourself over to the flow. And um, so that was an interesting aspect of my personality life. But um, at the end of that season, I, I threw my hat in the ring for student body president, okay. which is not something I'd ever done. And I'll be damned if I wasn't elected. That's great. Congrats. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> um, I was a little bit like, not, not, the, not the first time in my life, I was a little bit like the dog who caught the fire truck. You know, <laughs> I, had, I was not prepared in any way, shape, or form to be a student leader. And, uh, but I learned a lot and got a lot of support from the faculty. And, um, but it, it just shows you how you, you know, the transformation was, was radical on a number of levels. Um, and then, you know, Princeton came calling. And um, uh, at the end of that whole uh, experience, um, which you know was interesting in light of today's current events with um, uh, you know all the, uh, the protests in the streets today around racism. Right. Um, Princeton is was, at the time was called the northernmost southern town. Mm. They had a long uh, you know at the time of the Civil War, going back hundred years, half the students went down went back home to fight for the South. Oh wow! Half stayed up north to fight for the North. Many know. students had slaves at the university at that time, right. um, and so there, there was a there was a historic legacy in the town itself. There was a, a large African American population that, when I was there, performed many of the um, you know, subservient roles. So at the, at the eating clubs of the fraternities, there was often a black doorman and uh, you know all white students. So it had this it had this southern uh, flavor to it. And coming from Michigan, a northern uh, union, you know, stronghold and, and a big city of Detroit, um, you know, it, it was a racial experience that uh, I probably wouldn't have had if I'd gone to some other university. Um, True. But when I, when I graduated, you know, getting back to your question about the law, <laughs> kind of working around to that. No worries. Um, I, I thought about medical school, but um, decided that politics was... Hmm. Somewhere, and it you know, went back to the Kennedy reference and all that. Um, I didn't really have a clear plan. I wasn't like you know Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and, uh, and <laughs> others who know you know want to be president someday. That was right. not my thing. But um, so I went to law school. Okay. I went back home to the University of Michigan. Nice. Um, I was just going to comment that I think the storyline is that Kennedy wanted to go to Princeton, but then Joe, his father, stepped in and said, "No, you'll go to Harvard." Well, he, in fact, went to Princeton for his freshman year. Okay, that I didn't know. 
And then um, I, I, I'm going to get the story wrong, but I think his health. That's right. Had some issues and maybe some discipline issues, you know, behavior, <laughs> other types of things. It's, it's worth looking at, but something, he did go to Princeton for a while and then ended up back at Harvard. Um, okay, that's right. Which claims him to this day, right? That's right. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, uh, you attend uh, Michigan Law School, and I, I noticed, was it that your first job out of law school was in Korea? Yeah. Um, well, you know, stepping back a little ways back to Princeton, I, I, I took a year off while I was at Princeton, and I went up and I taught fifth grade in the South Bronx. Um, wow. What, and it was uh, related to this, this race, race um, yeah. you know, uh, question or uh, you know, conundrum that I, you know, I came of age during the 60s, the riots in Detroit, the assassination of Martin Luther King and, and Bobby Kennedy. Right, right. These were all things that, that affected my family um, directly, um, not as directly as many, but it wasn't something just that we read about. We, we were on the front lines, so to speak, of all, a lot of that going on. Um, and... Um, through a thought process that was more muddled than anything else, I ended up going to teach in the South Bronx. Uh, a few years later, a, a, a very bright woman, much brighter than I, also a Princeton undergrad, uh, I think she was a classmate of Michelle Obama, um, she started a thing called Teach for America. Oh, yes, right. Uh, and it's now Teach for the World. They have a global yeah. footprint. Um, and it was I, I, I'd like to think it was partly based on, on the experience that I and a few other undergraduates wow. before her had yeah. going out and, and you know teaching in, in these underprivileged parts of the country, but without the kind of training and, and experience that her organization now and support that they provide now, and, and definitely not at the scale. And she, um, uh, you know, really took it to a whole other level, and I, I admire that. And I tried now in my recent job to try to emulate that to say, you know, there's something that needs to happen. How do we do something at scale? Um, so that was really interesting. Um, That's great. You were part of that seed group. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know, so uh, it was at medical school teaching or uh, going to law school. And I punted and went to law school. Uh, and then, so when I came out, I, you know, I had an interest in, uh, uh, some interest in international and, uh, and also in some kind of social justice type of cause. And um, I, uh, I, I married one of my classmates uh, who is Korean, born in Korea. Okay. We lovely children. And we've recently divorced, uh, sadly. Um, oh, I'm sorry. But we, you know, we, we uh, connect with the human rights group. And Korea that year was having um, the first democratic elections. Okay. Uh, since the 19, since the post, right after World War after II, the war, yeah. there had been a military dictatorship, um, and uh, the middle class had grown to such an extent uh, uh, through, through, frankly, good governance of the economy, and, and the middle class wanted to have elections. So we went and monitored the 1987 uh, democratic elections in Korea. Um, mm. A week or two before the elections, the North Koreans blew up a commercial passenger jet. Wow. Um, and uh, it was, and so when people went to the polls, when they went to, to the ballot places, there was a, a fear that the North Koreans were going to be launching missiles in order to undermine this electoral democratic process. Um, and yet people turned out, you know, 
in record number, I mean, it wasn't, it was, of course, record numbers, but almost everybody went to vote. You had 90 year olds who were voting for the first time, or 60 year olds, or 30 year olds, and uh, standing in lines for hours, and, and uh, you know, just tears streaming down their faces. Um, Amazing. And as, as an American, um, you know, this is now 1987. Um, you know, it's, we're heading into the Bush, first Bush one in Clinton years, and this is all pre-Obama, but it really made me realize how important democracy is, how fragile it is, and all the institutions that go into creating that moment where you get to cast your ballot. And I also saw the, the dangers of, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, the ability of some leaders to generate huge crowds and anger and hostility mm, yeah. uh, because you had there was a military candidate who represented the vested established interests um, and then you had the opposition candidates who had been jailed and tortured uh, Kim Dae-jung later won the Nobel Peace Prize um, and both of them you know rallied a million crowds of million people it was really a sight to behold, but it was also kind of scary because, sure. um, you know, there, there was no history of abiding by the outcomes of elections. Um, mm -hmm. There was no history of making sure the elections were free and fair. And, you know, we're seeing echoes of that today. You know? Yeah, that's right. Will we respect the outcomes of the elections? Can we mobilize anger and divisiveness on both sides, on all sides, in order to you know, try to win at the ballot box, and can we, you know, will people be able to vote in a free and fair election? It would be, um, you know, uh, various modes of suppression, and, uh, you know, so that really stuck with me uh, for a long time. Uh, the, 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 the desire to, to help shape your own fate as, through the electoral process and through the political process. Um, and so I, you know, I, it really taught me to not take it for granted. and to, yeah. I've been involved in politics in one way or another since then. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that's great. Um, well, your comments really resonate, especially as we think about like Russian interference with elections and the power of social media um, getting messages out. Um, it's really, uh, it can be nefarious. So from there, you came back stateside and you were with Patton Boggs for about five years in the D.C. area. Yes, yeah, so I, I went, I, Patton Boggs was the outside counsel to the human rights group that I, um, okay. uh, that I worked for. So it was, it was a bit of a natural transition, but I, you know, it was a corporate law firm. So I was going, I was moving away from, you know, inner city education, right. human rights work, and, and, and right into the, you know, corporate America, which, you know, I'd, I'd, been ex I'd been exposed to a show, and it was certainly something I had an interest in. And, and I, uh, but it, but it ended up be, being not. Um, you know, what I didn't appreciate about the practice of laws is that it's, it's very. Um, it's um, you know, it's, it's a lot of pouring over texts and um, and a lot of contemplation and deep thinking and you know, drafting, and it's it's very scholarly and. Right. Um, and uh, you know, it turned out that that is not my strong suit. I mean, I'm I'm okay at it. I, I can grind it out, but it, after a few years, I, I think I recognized that it was it, it was uh, you know actually affecting my mental health. I think I had depression, mm. anxiety, oh, wow. not at level levels maybe, but motivation levels. It just was not the right thing. So at that point, I 
I, I jumped over to Congress to right. practice law there. Congressman Levin. Congressman Sandy Levin from Michigan. Nice. And his brother Carl. Sandy was on the Ways and Means Committee in the House of Representatives, and his brother Carl was in the Senate. Um, okay. Both from the state of Michigan, and you know, when you work at a senior level for one of the levels, you work for both of them. <laughs> right. Um, and it was it was wonderful. Two real, um, you know, they always told us, you don't worry about the politics; you just get the policy right, and you know, let us worry about the political side. So they were real good public servants. They were not the kind of politicians who would get up on you know soapboxes and, and mm. vilify the opposition or. Um, so really good public service. And I think most people in Congress are that way even to this day. Yeah. Although things are a little more polarized than they were back then. But great experience. Um, and you, you really feel the power of your role there because you're, you're addressing issues of national and international scope. I got, I, I got involved. Sandy was a leader on trade negotiations. So... We negotiated the um, formation of the Euro the uh, World Trade Organization. Wow, amazing! So-called Uruguay Round. Um, we um, we negotiated the the uh, accession of China into the WTO. So nice. bringing a bringing a, you know, a, a, a state-sponsored economy into a free market global system, which uh, has repercussions today. We're seeing it. it's mm. that's has not been a perfect marriage. It has not gone in the trajectory that we all hoped it would. I mean, it has in some ways, but um, there was a you know belief that free market forces would create not just an economic opportunity in opening in, in China, but also a political opening. And that has been reversed in recent years by Xi Jinping, and, and uh, you know, for reasons that are not entirely driven by the communist parties, they're really trying to create a society where everybody can thrive and mm. they have lots of challenges, um, but it, it's, it's, it's not worked out the, the way we thought it would. Um, we also negotiated the North American Free Trade Agreement. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Um, so we, we have three major trade negotiations and yeah. maybe there's been nothing quite as big since then. Right. Um, you know, in recent years, administrations have tried to tinker around the edges. And, but exciting time, you know, especially on the trade front. I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, did you contemplate a run for office yourself? You know, that's, that's a good question. I, this is a, this is very therapeutic, by the way, to go through your life with. I'm glad to hear that. Who's a good listener. <laughs> um, yeah. As I, as I looked for the next run, I, I did look at going back to Michigan and running for Congress. Um, and I actually pulled a little team together um, and I, I'll never forget my fundraiser uh, sat me down and said, you know, for the next four years, two years running for office, then two years defending it, after which you, you then, you, most members of Congress are pretty safe after that second run. Uh, but for the next four years, you're going to have to spend 90% of your time raising money. Yeah. And she said, I know you don't like doing that. <laughs> you're doing this because you want to make people's lives better. You, you believe in the policy, but... Mm. I just want you to know, for the next four years, 90% of your waking hours is going to be raising money. Oh. And I, I walked away. You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can understand that entirely. 
Well, that's a daunting. Was the, you know, the phone rang one day. It was, it, was a, it was a recruiter looking for Johnson & Johnson. I honestly didn't know anything about the company except baby powder. <laughs> but I was looking for something new. And, um, and they were looking for an international person to come in. Uh, they, they had a couple of people in the United States doing government relations. Um, and um, I spent 17 years traveling the globe, setting up outposts of empire, starting um, in Japan, and then working my way west through Korea, my wife's home, homeland, China, Australia, New Zealand, wow. Singapore, Indonesia. Okay, wow. Uh, Malaysia, and I, I worked my way all across. We, at the time, we sort of skipped over the African continent. We already had a place in South Africa. Uh, but then we did all of the Americas down to my last hire was in Argentina. Okay. Wow. And I'm, I'm proud to say we've gone back since I moved on to my current role. We, we've now started to build uh, infrastructure in Africa. Um, and, you know, as a, as a company, we, you know, our government relations, I mean, there's some, you know, basic blocking and tackling to make sure that our products get registered and, and you know, approved. But, we really are, you know, I think our, our best use is to help countries create sustainable healthcare systems. Right, right. Because we have, you know, we, are, we have experience across the globe with every type of system in existence. And we, you know, we have a good sense of what works and what doesn't. Um, and while we certainly have vested interests, we try to convene stakeholders from, uh, you know, across the ecosystem in order to help these countries deliver um, systems that work for their people and and that you know drive continuous improvement. You're in the space, uh, the healthcare space, with some of your work. That's right. Yeah. You know what I'm I'm referring to in terms Absolutely. of the complexity and the and the perverse incentives and yes, yes. Um, we, well, you know, a lot of our time is talking with uh, you know the, the government of China and the part the Communist Party of China with India. With the BJP and the Hindu uh, party, um, the, the Congress party, uh, and then you know Brazil with the the Workers Party of uh, of uh, Lula, and uh, I'm not involved with the current uh, group down there, but we've had other. Uh, and in Russia, we've worked with the you know all over the planet with different types of of interests, uh, different types of systems. And um, you know, I, I think people look look to us for that kind of guidance and input. Yeah. Even in the United States, um, yeah. is, Johnson and Johnson is, is I think it's the largest healthcare company in the world right now. Um, but you know we have the, the baby, that's right, and the, the, the consumer goods. So Tylenol, Listerine, Band Aid. If you open your medicine cabinet anywhere in the world, a lot of that is J and J. That's right. Brands in the, in the sort of fast moving consumer goods category and. Avino, Neutrogena, um, on and on. Um, you know, really just a great set of brands that are consumer health. And then we have our surgical division, which does uh, you know, robotic surgery now, um, uh, hip, you know, artificial hips and knees, joint replacement, um, eye surgery. Um, so that's another big unit. And then we have the pharmaceutical division and the vaccine division. Right. We, um, you know, we're, we're one of 
We have one of two Ebola vaccines on the market right now that's been approved. We have one of the leading COVID-19 vaccine candidates. Uh, and we're on the cusp of, um, in late stages of clinical trials on, a, on an HIV vaccine. Wow, amazing. Which uh, will be an incredible day because you and I remember when this was the death sentence. That's right, absolutely. And I, I had a professor who passed away right in front of our, not, not literally in front of us, but we watched him over the course of our time at law school, um, oh. you know, be ravaged by the illness and eventually passed away from it. So, you know, we lived through that. And, and, you know, today it's a chronic illness. It's not a death sentence anymore. Right. Including, in the, you know, the poorest parts of the world where we've created these sustainable, we've helped create, I and mean, a lot of other people made it happen, but we helped contribute to the creation of a sustainable delivery system to get drugs to people in the most remote parts of the world. But we may be, you know, as I say, we might get to a point where this is entirely preventable. Yeah, amazing. In the span of about 30 years, which is just... Incredible. Extraordinary. So, when, so then, you know, in 2013, my family had a number of mental health crises. And um, I, as I said in the, you know, the talk at the summit, um, I, I, I had no idea until then. I started researching, but mental illness is bigger than cancer and diabetes combined. That's true. Right. impact on the economy and society. And so, um, I made this transition into um, really focusing on how uh, you know we as a, as an organization, uh, but also we as a, as a society, could get our hands around uh, and, and transform mental health care. And it feels like that was a big. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off, Craig. I just wanted to highlight. It felt like that was a big shift for you because you were obviously really enjoying and thriving the work you were doing in governmental affairs. Um, so just I want to make sure to highlight the potency of what you went through personally to make this uh, big shift. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, I, I would have loved to have personally gone back, you know, uh, geographically back uh, eastward to Africa and been part of, you know, really uh, building out that infrastructure. That would have been uh, you know, a great way to finish off. But um you know, I, when I went to our head of, we have a neuroscience division, right. and we, you know we've been at this for 60 years. We we developed uh, Dr. Paul Jansen developed one of the first medicines for psychiatry, uh, Haldol for psych uh, for schizophrenia. Right. Uh, it's now on the WHO list of essential medicines for that. You know, poor countries are advised to have this. You know, in their, in their pharmacies. Um, um, and, you know, so I, I went to Husseini Manji, Dr. Manji, who's the head of our neuroscience R&D division. And I essentially said, look, I, I have this weird skill set. I, 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 have, I have a global understanding of how to deliver innovation in, in cancer, HIV, diabetes uh, around the world. And I'd like to see what I can do on mental health because I, I understand it. According to the World Health Organization, every country is a developing country when it comes to mental health. Yeah. And, and I had started in my, my later years as I went around my previous role, I started asking health ministers and doctors and patients and, uh, uh, you know, about mental health in their country. And I got to see uh, how it was handled and it was horrifying. Um, and not that dissimilar to what 
I had experienced in the United States. Right. Um, so I, I went to a scene, it's like I got this weird skill set. Um, I'd like to try to do something, you know. And so he and I hit it off, and he was already doing a lot of this work on his own, but I was able to kind of supplement his own leadership and connectivity and, and bring a few you know, new um, insights uh, and ideas of how to advance the, the work. Um, so we spent the last four years um, you know, doing our part to really catalyze a, 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 a support a global convening and, and movement on mental health. Um, and it's been, you know, it's um, the one thing that we, that I was not aware of, it, it, you know, couldn't have predicted was that the world was ready for this conversation. And it was already, in many ways, it was already having the conversation. We didn't cause it, but everything that we put on the table, every, everything that we contributed to the cause had, had, you know, repercussions beyond anything we could have anticipated. Yeah, amazing. The confluence of uh, of events and the timing of it uh, it was feels very uh, um, auspicious in that way in terms of affecting uh, change. Um, Craig, you talked about 2013 being a pivotal year vis-a-vis -vis personal mental health uh, issues uh, or within the family. Wondering if you'd be willing to talk about the pivotal call you got on New Year's Day. Uh, 2014. Um, if you're comfortable, yeah, that was a great share at the Never Alone Summit. Yeah, my, my um, uh, you know, New Year's Day 2013, a phone call from my daughter. Um, and, um, you know, I picked up the phone. It was, uh, and it was, there was a man on the other end of the line. And, um, you know, I, 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 I knew that she'd been on a first date the night before. And I, I, I thought this was kind of awkward. The guy, you know, ended up in the, uh, and uh, he said, you, you know, Catherine's father? And I said, yes. And, uh, and then he changed my life by saying, this is the Boston Police Department. Your daughter tried to kill herself. You know, we're taking her to the hospital. You need to get up here right away. And I just remember word for word the whole thing. And, um, you know, I, 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 I forgot to mention at the summit, and this is unforgivable, but I, I kept, you know, I had a limited amount of time, but I, I didn't mention that she's alive today. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. She gives me, she gives me permission uh, uh, to tell her story. I, I always check in with her, um, you know, say, is, is it okay to keep talking about this? And, you know, she lives with a chronic condition uh, and she works her tail off. She works very hard to manage it. And, you know, she's uh, had a, uh, and uh, I would say she's thriving, um, struggling, and surviving. Um, and thriving. Um, she's uh, going in September to get her master's, to continue to get her master's in social work. She's back in your home in, state of Michigan. Well, that, that's uh, she's going to be down, but she's transferring to Florida now, a little warmer. Oh, okay. She found, she found the winters and the darkness to be, frankly, depressing. <laughs> so, that's understandable. Uh, down to Florida to continue the, the, the pursuit of that. Um, but we also, you know, she's, um, we, we continue to navigate the system together um, as, you know, moving, um, you know, you build a support structure in one place and then you, in America, if you, when you go to somewhere else, you have to reconstitute that now. Um, That's so true. And it's difficult to find a psychiatrist that you resonate with and who know what you need. And, and, and then you have to find a therapist. And if you're, if you have an eating disorder like she does, you have to 
find a nutritionist. Right. And uh, so you have to, and again, the mental health system doesn't really exist as a system. You have That's to, right. you know, disparate parts together. you have to kind of mash together. And it's, uh, you know, it's not, I, my, my father just had cancer two years ago and he's doing great. He's 84. Oh, wow. Okay. Glad to hear but that. That was a really different experience. I mean, everybody, all the, the primary care doctor knew a lot about cancer and he stayed with us on the whole journey. When we talked to the surgeon and the oncologist, um, and it was all by the book. You know, the, 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 everybody knew what the, the, the treatment guidelines were. Um, you know, you knew kind of when your case might be requiring some innovations or clinical trials. But you know, there was never a moment where we had to, you know, interview 15 oncologists, find one who had room in his schedule or her schedule, and was following evidence-based practice. Um, and that, you know, we didn't have to look for somebody that we trusted and bonded with because it was science and medicine. Right. Um, so, you know, we, we, we continue to struggle on that. And, but that, um, was the first wake up call later that year, a, 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 we lost a, a family member to opiate overdose. Oh, wow. I'm sorry to hear. And, um, you know, so those were the twin shocks that year. And once you, um, start the conversation in your family, you'll, you'll realize that this is, this is, every family has, uh, you know, these illnesses, uh, one in four people has a mental a diagnosable condition. They're very heritable. So if it's in your family, once you start peeling back the layers, you'll find out that, um, you know, that your daughter's condition has antecedents and, and, you know, and those people are struggling too. So you, um, and there's a lot of stigma around this, so people still don't like to talk about it as much as uh, we need to. But we're, you know, we're starting to change the conversation, right? Excellent. No, that's great. Um, I mean, part of the issue that you've spoken about and in uh, writing that you've done for both the J&J site and uh, for uh, courts and other outlets, that uh, it, it goes untreated because um, we were not really attuned to uh, the warning signs. And um, you had a great share where you talked about the, the teaspoons, um, but that only made sense in a kind of connect the dots type of way yeah. after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. So I, as I said, my daughter has an eating disorder. Um, and, yeah, there were, especially with the young girls in America, there's a whole diet culture and, um, you know, she would go through fads and wanted to eat salads only and, and you know, we thought it was a phase. Uh, it turns out it was it was it was, a, it was an illness. And what sort of brought it home was was one. You know, we we noticed that our teaspoons um, in our cutlery drawer were you know, becoming fewer and fewer numbers, and suddenly there were none left. We thought well, that is the strangest thing. Where are all these spoons going? And uh, it was nothing about the spoons. You know. As, as distinguished from a fork or anything, but for whatever reason, uh, my daughter was using lots of spoons and taking food up into her room and eating in private. And um, there's this tortured relationship with food. It's a love hate when you have an eating disorder, and it's a physical love hate. It's a real visceral reaction to it. Um, and so she was hiding her illness and the implements of that illness. Um, I'm not even sure we ever found all those spoons. <laughs> 
when the article that you're referring to where the spoons were mentioned was one that she and I wrote together, you know, years later, we're trying to piece together some advice and lessons learned that we could share with other parents and families. Um, and, you know, that, that was just uh, something that we looked back and thought, well, yeah, that was uh, an indicator that this was more than just a teenage, you know, uh, you know, um, Phase. experimentation with, you know, food and diet. It really was a disease of pathological illness yeah yeah well and they say with eating disorders food is just a coping mechanism for something deeper and um you know, yeah, i think that's i think that's largely right yeah 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 well and i commend both you and Catherine in being so open and, and vocal about it that's really going to go a long way in addressing the, the stigma and um so i i just also want to be thoughtful of your your time craig um What's your, uh, what do you feel is your uh, mission or, or vision um, with your current role as mental health ambassador? Where would you like to, to see it go? Well, we are talking about making massive culture change, you know, ending the stigma, but even more than that, creating a culture of inclusion for people who live with these characteristics, uh, this neurodiversity. Um, some of it is, you know, preventable. Some of it is curable, um, but a lot of it is is just part of who people are. And you know, people like my daughter will say that they would not give up their illness for anything because it's made them who they are, and it also has given them certain, um, you know, strengths and abilities that uh, and and, and uh, self awareness and appreciation they would never would have had if they hadn't had to struggle in the in this characteristic. Um, but we're also talking about massive system change. We've got to provide access and, and funding for coverage. And, and we also need to invest in the science. Um, the, the amount of investment that's gone into this is, is vastly disproportionate to the negative, uh, uh, to the disease burden that's associated with mental health. So um, on that end, you know, we're working with uh, WHO and the, and the World Bank and the Wellcome Trust and Harvard University and others to create a global fund for mental health research. Um, and, and that's in advanced stages. We, we expect to have a, a formal launch next year. Um, um, it's called the Healthy Brains Global Initiative. And we actually, there's actually a website now. J&J &J will step away from that at some point, but we, you know, we've been part of the steering committee and the formation group of that. Because that needs to be a separate, you know, independent agency that's going to collect, we hope, tens of billions of dollars and, and then deploy those into the, the most impactful research in uh, basic and translational science, the, the basic neurobiology. And, and, and related, um, you know, physiology, um, but also in what, what's called implementation science. How do we take mm -hmm. the things like talk therapy and, um, you know, uh, whatever digital solutions are proven, there are many that are not proven now, but how do we scale those up, you know, tomorrow uh, across the globe? Because this is a global problem. We have just as much trouble accessing this in, in the, wealthy cities or inner cities of America as we do in you know, villages in rural India or, or wherever you might have. So, uh, but, but the science we think is going to do like it has for HIV, like it has for cancer, uh, 
it's going to uh, transform not only the physical uh, you know, results of these illnesses, but it's going to transform the, the, uh, the stigma. Yeah. You know, when we finally had a treatment for HIV is when people were more likely to get tested because now there was something you could do about it. It wasn't just a, a taint on your, you know, your, your reputation. Now you, you could be somebody who was living with this and, and be a constructive advocate. So we, we think that you know, somewhere down the road, hopefully sooner rather than later, that science is gonna deliver some new treatments. And it, it doesn't have to be pharmaceutical, that's one element of it. Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of you know, digital and also electronic and, and, and even, but even talk therapy, we need to be more rigorous about um, what we're delivering when and where and, and collect the data, do the data analytics, do the machine learning and uh, you know, hold ourselves accountable for the results. And, and uh, that doesn't happen by and large now. So that's the, the system side of it. On the culture side, um, you know, this is now largely happening. We've, we've been part of the formation of a couple of these global efforts. There's a global coalition on youth mental health. There's a United for Global Mental Health. Uh, the World Economic Forum now has launched a number of initiatives and so we're very involved with, with uh, WEF as a convener of youth and, and also employers uh, coming together to address the culture in their own workplaces around this. Um, I was, um, one of the things that, you know, we, that, you know, that we did not predict and that has just has really surprised us is that I, one of the things I first did when I got this new role is I, we, we have a TEDx J&J event every year and I took the stage and told my story in a little bit longer format than, um, and I asked for volunteers. I said, we're gonna, we're gonna put J&J's power into transforming mental health. If this affects you, um, you know, contact me. Mm. And I thought I'd get, you know, half a dozen people. We'd, Get together for coffee and you know take assignments right there were a thousand people in the audience by the end of the week i have 400 volunteers oh my goodness wow and almost every one of them sent me an email that had their story their yeah. family story, wow and you know tragedy and and uh, and struggle and, um, and 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 also a growing awareness that there were many family members that they had left behind because of their own unconscious biases their own you know we don't deal with aunt mary because she's you know she's crazy right well that's a different conversation when you think about it in these in the new lens that, that mary's struggling with something and with a little support and, and kindness can re-engage with society and bring these gifts the gifts that she has to the table so we um we took these four how do we created the first um employee resource group in the world that, that we're aware of. Um, you know, we have employee groups for LGBTQ, for, uh, you know, we have ones for military veterans, for women, for African-Americans. Um, and we created the first one for people who live with mental illness, either as a patient or as a caregiver or an ally, we would call them allies, right? That group has become the fastest growing new ERG in J&J history. Oh, that's great. We have chapters in over 70 countries, which is more chapters than any other ERG. We still don't have as big a membership as the LGBTQ or the women's groups or the millennial group, um, but we, we, we've remarkably 
found receptivity and leadership in every country in the world, which I, having been around the world, I thought that some countries where I thought stigma was deeper, uh, that people would not be comfortable coming forward. But as I said, there have been a lot of people working in the space, and we, I, I was lucky to be arriving at a time when if you asked people to stand up, they would stand up. Amazing. And those people are now telling their stories. And we are, you know, we recognize that we can't solve our employees' problems if we don't change the system. And so we're reaching out to other employers, both private sector and government and nonprofit. And we're inviting them to create similar employee groups and, you know, create coalitions and then bring the CEOs together. Uh, And this is something the World Economic Forum has helped is partnering with us on. Uh, to create that, uh, that that part of the movement that's organized and has political power and has financial wherewithal to join forces with the grassroots activists, not only in raising the voices and changing the stigma, but in driving the system change yeah. that's required. So, so that's uh, where you know where I'm focusing my uh, energies now is is trying to put those two things. Uh, accelerate and, and finance those those kind of initiatives so that we can you know someday live in a world where everybody knows that you know this is not about character it's about chemistry yeah well so well said and it truly is extraordinary the work you're doing and i love the lead by example element because it's such a an important platform uh, as you talked about the various segments of our lives that johnson and johnson touches um, to be at the forefront for leading this, um, it's, it's an amazing platform to be able to do it from. And I, I just, it's extraordinary. I really appreciate all your efforts there. And I know a lot of audience members listening are, will feel the same way. So, uh, yeah, you know, and one, one thing that, that, is, that we can all see now is with COVID-19, um, you know, this is the first natural disaster that I've seen where everybody understands that mental health is part of what's going on. There's going to be a second wave of mental health repercussions, and we're, we're starting to get ready for it in, in advance. Um, you know, it seems like people have learned to hum, hum the tune. They've learned the music. Yeah. They don't all know the words yet. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna, we're, we need to teach people the words, but well said. it's very gratifying that um, people see that. And, and in the United States, we're wrestling now with um, you know, the, the legacy of racism. Yeah. And, you know, and there again, uh, part of the, the untold story here is that for black people in America, uh, every day is filled with anxieties and, and uncertainties and threats. And those are the you know, preconditions for development of clinical. Uh, you, you see in the African-American community, you know, double the incidence of depression and anxiety wow. and other you know, manifestations of mental duress. And so, you know, we are leaning into that part of the conversation. And there are already many leaders from that community. Um, and we're trying to you know, do our part to, um, you know, make sure that as we not only recognize the impact of COVID and racism, uh, but we also commit ourselves to uh, resolving them and, and you know, building a better future, um, that, that mental health is part of that um, solution that we all that we all you know build and create that's fantastic and your ceo alex gorski has taken a great leadership role 
and the statements he's been making. Uh, that's very much appreciated. It's uh, really extraordinary. Uh, you know, we do not have a system, a mental health system in any country that's equipped to handle the current load, let alone the surge that's going to happen. And so we need to, you know, it's time for us to really, we know what we need to do. The blueprints are on the shelf and we need to start to invest in this and implement it. So, and I, and I think people will now be more receptive to the idea that it's not um, just, oh, that person is is lazy or, or crazy or emotional, but we, we get that there's a link between daily life and we're all on this continuum, we're all on the spectrum. And, um, you know, we, we, we can affect where we land on the spectrum or how we live on the spectrum. Uh, so I, 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 we are, you know, I, I initially was worried that uh, COVID was going to drive mental health off the agenda. Mm. And I think it did for a couple of weeks, but it, it has come back. And as I say now, you know, we're seeing that everybody gets that this is part of what's going to happen next. Yeah. And we're not really any more ready for it than we were for the pandemic. Right. Um, so we've, we've got our work to do. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the part, the coalitions that you're forging, the partnerships, um, I think that's all an important part of how we can we can get there. So, very much appreciate all that you're doing, Craig. Um, thank you so much for for being on the show. It's been really extraordinary, and I, I hope this is the first of many conversations and interactions we're we're able to have. Hey, Asim, thank you for what you're doing, and um, I hope we can meet up again. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.